Hi everyone, Sam here. Thanks for listening to the Policy Dispatch. Before we get on with the show, just a quick word on how you can access the rest of our unmissable and informative journalism on Foresight Climate and Energy. If you'd like to enjoy premium access to this or any of our other podcasts, as well as our in-depth articles, you can. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightmedia.com to find out more. Join our global community of listeners and readers today to stay informed, entertained and in the know about all things climate and energy. Welcome to the Policy Dispatch. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. Thanks for joining me for this first episode of the new season. We're really excited to bring you more interviews with some of the most interesting people driving the energy transition as we take a closer look at the nuts and bolts of the ongoing shift towards a decarbonised world. For this first show, I thought it would be really useful to look back at what happened in Dubai just before the holiday break. The COP28 climate summit was heavily anticipated and it managed to generate plenty of news headlines, not all of them good of course, but the annual showcase was front and centre of people's attentions for the two weeks that it ran. With a bit of distance and a couple of weeks to digest the outcome and the possible ramifications of the summit, I turned to Linda Kalcher, the Executive Director of Strategic Perspectives, a pan-European think tank that focuses on climate solutions. Linda was there at COP to see how it all unfolded, and in today's discussion she shares her views on the summit. We delve into whether COP has made it easier for policymakers around the world this year to be more ambitious on climate, and whether elections this year will be driven by green issues. Just before we kick on with the show, time for the return of the Policy Dispatch Quiz. For the first question of the year, I'm asking you, COP28 was the most attended COP summit ever. According to the final figures, how many people took part? I'm also including official online participation here, so bear that in mind. Was it A, 52,000, B, 65,000, C, 86,000, or D, 97,000 people? Answer, as always, after the show. Linda, thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. Um, it's our first of the new year. Um, and I've actually been really looking forward to kicking off our new season with this discussion. Uh, so yeah, welcome to the show. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Just for the listeners at home, maybe like a behind the scenes sort of detail about how we put these episodes together. Um, I had originally hoped that we would do an episode like this with you just after COP28 in Dubai finished um, to close off last year's season. But for one reason or another, mostly my own fault, uh, that wasn't possible. Um, but I'm actually glad that there was this delay because I think with a bit of distance and a bit of time to chew over the result of COP28, um, I think now it's actually almost better timing, especially since we consider what 2024 is going to, to have in store with us. Um, so with that in mind, um, Linda, maybe if we cast our minds back to that summit, it was only a month ago, somehow it feels like it was, uh, I don't know, two or three months. Um, what are your feelings about the summit now when you look back on the result? Um was any perhaps bad feeling that accompanied some of the, the aspects of COP, just a fleeting one? Um, maybe on the other side of the coin, were any of the good feelings and the optimism, are they, were they short-lived or premature? You know, how, do you, how do you consider that summit when you look back right now? 
It's a good question. And it's actually interesting to look back now, the moment you start to project into 2024 and what it might bring. I still believe that it's the best possible outcome we could have achieved. Um, if you look at the geopolitical tensions, uh, not least in the Middle East, but also the, the lasting war in Ukraine and some of the US-China dynamics throughout the last year, I don't think it was a given that we get so much out of it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, as traditionally with every COP, we can argue we would have loved to have more on mitigation and sort of the trajectory to move away from fossil fuels. We would have loved to see more support on adaptation. We would have loved to also see more finance pledges coming through, mm-hmm. um, especially those that traditionally don't put a lot of money forward like the US. There was hope we get more on this, but I think it speaks to the to the balance of the outcome and mm-hmm. that we actually have a, a good balance across it. I think it was also really, really a significant achievement that we got the loss and damage fund operational mm-hmm. and running. Again, it's it's the money that was pledged is nothing in compared to the money that would be needed to really support the most vulnerable countries. But on the other hand, I also think that many observers wouldn't have expected the fund to come mm-hmm. operational so fast. It still does feel, looking back now, that that was you know that was the first thing that came out of the summit, and it's still there still seems to be a lot of good feeling about it. I mean, all, all of these results are talking about, you know, the different pledges, the sort of the, the feeling that was created by this summit. How do you think that's going to feed into policymaking this year? For example, you know, the, the 2040 EU target that's, that's going to be proposed next month. Do you think it's created a smoother landing spot for these kind of, you know, initiatives to, to actually be received with um, maybe, you know, open, more open minds in a way. Um, so do you think that, you know, the legacy of, of that COP will, will stand this year in good stead? We hope so. Mm-hmm. And, and we certainly work towards it, especially because it was the global stock take, right? It was the moment to check in how far did we get, where are we and what needs to happen next. And I think this year really much will show on what needs to happen next. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the deadline for the 2035 NDC, so the next national pledges, has now been set between November this year and February next year. Mm-hmm. So all countries of this world need to look into ooh, what can we achieve by 2035. And I think there the guidance on fossil fuel phase out, on limiting the amount of abatement technologies you use, on really giving some guidance on all sectors needing to contribute mm-hmm. is really helpful in this regard. Mm-hmm. And obviously, especially for the countries in the global south, we hope that a lot of conversations will pick up on climate finance. So the reform of the World Bank and some of the international financial institutions that lead up to the next COP that obviously has to agree the next finance goal. That's quite an interesting sequence because if if we really get more finance for climate action, mm-hmm. that should enable countries to really pledge more ambitious goals in their next national determined contributions. Mm-hmm. And, and that speaks also to the fact that I think we see a global race to the top on green tech. Obviously, China has a strong presence in that area. We have seen the US with the Inflation Reduction Act really saying, okay, this is this is an economic choice. This is a security choice for us. They don't only do it because of climate. It's really the, the competitive advantages that play there. But this can't be the benefit only to the countries that can afford it, right? And 
that's that's a debate we see globally. That's the debate we see within Europe. So it can't be that only the countries that have the fiscal space can really boost their industries to produce EVs or mm-hmm. solar panels uh, or wind. It has to be something that is mm-hmm. really the sort of the yeah secures the prosperity for all European countries. I mean, on that point of you know climate action or the you know the policies that drive climate action being security and economic decisions now by government a lot of governments do you think then that we have either reached or crossed that tipping point where doing things for the climate is no longer it's no longer ideology as it has been considered in the past we are firmly into this period now this era of governments realizing that it's just the you know the occam's razor it's this is the simplest solution to the problem this is what we need to do we need to build more solar and wind as china is doing for example and that these real outliers of governments that still rage against the the climate machine, as it were, are very much in the minority. I really saw, think we saw that already in Dubai. Mm-hmm. I mean, for for better or the worse, the the business presence there was very strong. Yes, also the the fossil fuel companies, obviously, that yeah felt a bit at unease, mm-hmm. <laughs> probably by being put on the spot and saying, well, the transition needs to move away from your current business model. Uh, but also if you see how many industry or renewable industry actors were on the ground, it shows that it really matters for them. And, and that's that's the future. And and even if you talk to some of the companies that are Europe-based, they say like, no, we need sort of, we need a better framework. We need more predictability. And that just speaks to more policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's also bringing it back to to what the commission will propose on the 6th of February, if there is confidence by business actors and by some of the countries that this is the way to go and that some of the choices that they need to make in terms of energy security, being less dependent on gas imports, not just from Russia, but other companies, uh, other countries, that's really the dynamic we want to see. And, And there are a lot of European companies that say, well, gas, meanwhile, is expensive. It's it's no longer the cheap energy. Mm-hmm. The cheap or affordable energy is renewable. So let's shift there. They're doing sort of these, yeah, public-private contracts and power purchasing agreements to say, we want access to more renewables. Mm-hmm. And that's a clear mind shift. So taking that in mind and, and also the result from COP, obviously, with the language on getting rid of fossil fuels, even though it was tempered with, you know, the, the unabated kind of uh, language as well. Do you think that a fossil fuel phase out perhaps within the EU, for example, is now likely, more likely, something that we could actually, you know, see emerge in some sort of policy form, even, you know, make a be a part of this 2040 target in some way? What, what do you think the outlook for that is? I would surely hope that the EU actually walks the talk now. We've seen the commissioner Hoekstra in Dubai consistently saying it's the beginning of the end of fossil fuels. We cannot CCS ourselves out of the problem. So now it's time to walk the talk at home. And we really hope that the commission specifies a fossil fuel end date or phase down trajectory per fuel end per sector. Uh, We've done our own modeling towards 2040. And for example, it was clear that all coal is out of the system by 2030 it also uh, shows that the power sector is largely decarbonized by 2037 across the EU, which is obviously even more relevant 
if we assume that half of our economy will be electrified by 2040, mm -hmm. then it's even more relevant that we do that based on a zero emissions power system. Mm -hmm. Else you're just transposing the emissions through the system. And equally on any forms of carbon capture, it is probably needed, but we need to be very smart about which sectors and where it makes economically sense. Mm -hmm. And if you see how little carbon capture and storage is currently globally happening, we also shouldn't be too confident that this is now rapidly scaling up mm -hmm. unless the economic conditions would be there. But there, again, the concern about the economic conditions to make it viable probably mean a high carbon price. Is that something that politicians can accept? Is that something that actually helps our industry or would mm -hmm. that be a concern for an industry? So we're very much going into these um, debates mm -hmm. now. The other element that we saw, for example, was on industry decarbonization, there needs to be much higher incentives to circularity. Obviously, the internet, the industry itself could benefit by lowering their raw material demands through it, mm -hmm. but it's not necessary that a carbon price drives that transition. So we would also need some additional um, policies to accompany that transition. I mean, that, that point on carbon pricing, I mean, it's obviously been the, the real fundamental bedrock of the gains that the EU has made over the last 10 years, for sure, with the emissions trading system. Do you think that as we move from 2023 into 2024, well, we're there already, of, of course, um, that carbon pricing will start to become a bit more in vogue, a bit more popular around the world because of things like the ETS being so effective in carbon pricing, CBAM, of course, setting a carbon import price at the border, you know, gradually as we go through the years. Um, even things like this um, example of Switzerland buying emissions credits under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement from Thailand, you know, this global idea of, you know, carbon offset trading, carbon permits. Do, do you think that more governments will see carbon pricing as it's the only way to really do any of this. You know, if you don't have that underpinning your policies, you're going to, it's like bailing water out of a ship with a bucket, you know, it, it's, you're only going to make a certain amount of progress. Or do you think there still will be a bit of pushback? You know, obviously the United States is a prime example of where carbon pricing has never really um, been able to cross the first step, let alone become policy. So um, yeah, what, what do you think of that? I think it strongly depends on what sector you're trying to decarbonize. Mm -hmm. So I think especially for an industry sector, it might make sense to have that strong price signal. I'm personally a bit concerned if then we were talking, we would be talking about a 300 or 400 euro carbon price. I'm not sure if, if that is a level um, that policymakers or companies themselves would still f find adequate. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's often really the sort of cost of abatement that there comes in. So it might not be the best solution to actually help a household mm -hmm. change their heating system or might not be a strong incentive to change your car. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for companies or businesses, it might be quite a good incentive to decarbonize again it's questionable if that's really the strongest driver for more circularity mm -hmm. so i think it really depends um and when i talked to some of the 
the African negotiators or civil society organizations, they had the feeling it had been some northern European countries with, or northern countries in general, with strong mm-hmm. yeah, advertisement companies behind mm-hmm. that really tried to incentivize Africa to also adopt a carbon pricing approach. But obviously, they're in a position where they want to grow their industry. And you could argue that these nascent industries might already be with a very strong low carbon focus. Mm-hmm. And it's not that you sort of try to change the and transform the industry, but you're just sort of really growing it. And maybe that's then another incentive scheme that they would be looking for. Mm -hmm. And also, I think, yeah, we hear mixed results about how effective the Chinese carbon price is at this Mm -hmm. moment in time. And then, yeah, the time dimension comes back in, like, how long does it take to establish these schemes, Mm -hmm. scale them up? and become effective because if that takes 10 to 15 years it yeah. might be a bit too late for some economies to actually play out yeah. effectively and i think yeah especially for the us example if you look at how they structured it like they clearly knew how much technologies they want to produce they had a good view where exactly they want to produce it mm-hmm. uh, and that came with the benefit that in the rust belt they created about 200,000 new jobs within a year because they thought it's added value to really yeah reindustrialize these regions which i think is a beautiful example that could also be replicated in europe mm-hmm. we have so many regions that are facing multiple transitions if these are the places where we do the battery companies or the clean tech companies then we can really keep yeah the strong assets and and skills of the people that are currently working there in the region hi everyone sam here Thanks for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we get on with the show, just a quick word on how you can access the rest of our unmissable and informative journalism on Foresight Climate and Energy. If you'd like to enjoy premium access to this or any of our other podcasts, as well as our in-depth articles, you can. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightmedia.com to find out more. Join our global community of listeners and readers today to stay informed, entertained and in the know about all things climate and energy. That's the secret recipe, I guess. I mean, if we look at the milestones coming up this year, got the 2040 target for Europe being for the EU being proposed on the 6th of February as well as a carbon management strategy I don't know how you know what kind of signal that sends whether or not they'll be interlinked so much or whatever we'll see um and then I suppose as much of the fit for 55 legislation that's still outstanding needs to be signed off rubber stamped and everything and then of course in June is the EU elections which are the you know the big 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 thing which will dictate policy making for the next five years or so. Um, I mean, how prominently do you think that climate environment is going to figure this time around? Do you think that it's going to be a headline issue overall that really will dictate what we're talking about in 12 months time? Or, you know, the economic situation is obviously the thing that concerns a lot of households where climate is secondary to that. Um, Do you have any sort of Obviously, not asking you for predictions because we'd both be much richer people if we could do, we could do that. But um, you know, what's your sense of where where these elections are going to go? Do you think that it's going to be more focused on green than it's ever been, or 
would even politicians prefer that it wasn't where, you know, it's easier sometimes to get things done if people aren't too concerned about it and can, can launch a, you know, pointless culture war about electric vehicles or, or something like that. You know, what's your, what's your take on that? It's, yeah, it's difficult to predict. I think the current polls obviously show that there's a bigger gain for some of the hard right and, and populist parties with, with a bit of a loss uh, for the Greens. I think, If you then look at some of the polling of society, their climate still ranks among the top three topics. So it will be interesting how how that dynamic will actually play out mm -hmm. the day uh, of the vote. Also, we've seen a couple of more protests in the street that are actually pro-democracy currently. So I think that's, that's a helpful dynamic and... Obviously, yeah, Be ahead of the Green Deal, we saw a lot of youth protests in the street that also sort of provided the political space to step up on climate. I think going back to, to my earlier point that some of the policies are now a matter of economic or security policies might play into that. So even if climate ambition bluntly speaking, is not the biggest topic for the elections and thereafter. I think in the meanwhile, we also saw the Europeans greening their recovery funding mm -hmm. in response to the pandemic. We've seen the renewables and efficiency goals going up in the context of the need to move away from Russian gas. So again, there we didn't do it for the climate or 1.5 goal. We did it out of economic reasons and out of security reasons. So It's almost that dynamic that we can probably see continuing. Uh, and there are like a lot of underlying changes that, yeah, the vote cannot affect. Mm -hmm. Renewables are getting cheaper. We also probably over the next two years see the price parities for heat pumps and electric vehicles. So like a lot of it becomes more affordable, becomes the mainstream. And these things can probably not be affected by the vote. But obviously, if we were to have a stronger hard right or anti-climate framing, it will be even more difficult to, to get some of the traditional policies through. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit sort of, yeah, the space we need to to navigate. I mean, just picking up on that security point again, I mean, the, the time of recording this, you've got the Red Sea, you know, a center of tensions, no LNG ships going through it. CEO of Chevron saying, yes, this is a real risk to oil flows and oil prices. Um, I mean, how much of a trickle down are these events that we're seeing? It seems almost all too often now of energy trade being disrupted because of geopolitical tensions, whether it's, you know, pipelines being wrecked by ship anchors or, you know, whatever actually happened there and um, electricity cables being, you know, potential geopolitical targets and things. At sort of the highest level, is this the kind of thing that actually is causing renewables at home to be sort of pushed further up on the agenda? Or is that just something that seems obvious to the likes of you and me where you, you know, you would, you, I would do that if I was Rishi Sunak or someone like that. Um, or do you think there is actually real evidence of this happening and becoming more commonplace because of these things that are happening and will continue to happen? I would certainly argue that it's over the last years that a lot of households and companies had to wake up to the fact that the era of cheap gas is over. <laughs> and I think it was, yeah, it was factored into business plans. It was sort of 
an assumption of your monthly bills, okay, that's that's all right. And I think it's really the shock and the aftermath of the, of the Russian war in Ukraine that changed these dynamics. And certainly even in countries where you would argue they're not the climate-friendly or most climate-minded people, if you look at how much like heat pumps scale up massively in Poland, Absolutely. Yep. that's an economic evaluation mm-hmm. of the households that were able to afford it to say, oh, I'd rather make myself independent from these fluctuations. I'd rather make myself independent mm-hmm. from from any pro- future price shocks. And I think in some of the boardrooms of companies, the same happened. Obviously, especially the German companies mm-hmm. were highly dependent on cheap Russian gas. And now they had to reconsider their business model. So reducing it was possible for some. Mm-hmm. Others just had to literally close down because they couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. Even with the government having quite generous support schemes for some, it was just not possible. So, and and this is where the the discussion of a sort of well managed transition comes in mm-hmm. because either you plan for it or anticipate it, or you're vulnerable to such a shock, and then it's difficult how how you can recover from it or how you can in a very short time frame adjust your entire business operation to to be independent mm-hmm. from gas. So I think that's, yeah, that has created quite an interesting dynamic and, and reasoning, not only for climate-friendly or green-minded people. Mm-hmm. I keep always thinking that, you know, the best time to have done all of these things was was yesterday, at least, you know. And, um, yeah, and it, but it doesn't help to say, oh, no, I told you so. No, it's, it's not a very, uh, you know, gratifying feeling really, is it? You get that fleet in, yes, I was right, but oh, okay, we're still, I'm still one of the many that are affected by this. So it's not a victory actually. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, we talked about the EU election. The other big one, of course, is uh, what's going to happen in the United States in November. Um, a lot of commentators have obviously spent a lot of column inches talking about how Europe should have woken up to the fact that it shouldn't be relying on the United States for defense, first of all. And of course, you know, Ukraine policy will be heavily affected if Joe Biden does not win in November and the former president, Mr. Trump, wins instead. But on climate, obviously, if Joe Biden doesn't get a second term and, you know, again, we can't predict, but if Donald Trump becomes president again, he took the US out of the Paris Agreement, he thinks windmills cause cancer, you know, this all obviously has a bleed down effect on what the US does policy wise. Um, should Europe have been doing more to prepare for this eventuality? Is it doing enough to actually think, well, we're not going to be able to rely, maybe not rely on John Kerry, who's retiring now. There isn't going to be any sort of teaming up on climate clubs and, you know, green steel standards, you know, the real nitty gritty that, that the U S has actually been seemingly quite helpful on, um, do you think people are taking that eventuality seriously or it's just, oh, you know, they won't vote for him. He was a disaster last time. Why would that happen again? And, you know, that, that it seems to be a possibility. So I would certainly hope and assume that this time the Europeans are better prepared. I think last time the argument of a shock and surprise might have been more palatable than this time going in and assuming it, it couldn't happen again. Mm. So, yeah, the the most policymakers I talk to, it's it's one of the two scenarios, right? And you need to sort of plan uh, for both of them, obviously. I think this time, again, it will be interesting to understand 
how much damage a Trump presidency could do. Mm-hmm. Again, I think the the fact that Texas builds windmills uh, and that some of the RA has obviously also benefited some of the rather Republican-leaning states mm-hmm. might speak to the fact that there is some economics that also a potential Trump presidency can't undo anymore. And especially as some of the Inflation Reduction Act framing was very anti-China, that's obviously an element that is also very close to his um, priorities. Mm. But yeah, needless to say that on the diplomatic side, it would be very damaging. It leads to another security concern because obviously also the imports of US LNG Mm. are going higher and higher every year. So then we are dependent on Trump to a certain extent, but also just the US companies to actually export it. So that's another interesting element to watch. And in terms of climate diplomacy, I would actually say that the Europeans stepped up quite a lot over the last years. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the renewable energy pledge that was initiated by the Europeans, where they now have I think close to 130 countries really supporting it, where they want to look into how can we implement it, how can we help with the finance structures for renewables and efficiency in other countries, how can we do that? I think that's that's something where they can really capitalize their diplomatic outreach. There was also talks of this critical raw materials club that they were looking into to really yeah, de-risk and diversify away from China as much as helping building better value chains and cooperation with some of these countries. So really building cooperation where communities benefit, where value chains mm-hmm. are created. And it's not only about the export, but really benefiting the countries as well. So I think there is a lot um, at play that can be strengthened and, and further enhanced. And then I think it's also will be interesting to see how some of the other economies and large players react to that. I would assume that given China, for example, is very, very invested in an industrial strategy that relies on green tech, Mm -hmm. they are just going to continue. Like they're already sort of having, yeah, I think I was seeing like 60% of the global green tech supply chain. It's incredible. The, the That's numbers, an economic argument. Yeah. The numbers don't they make sense to me it. anymore. They, they just, you know, China installed 12,000 gigawatts this year or something like that. It's, it's, it's meaningless to me. It, it, it's amazing, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, which, but then also just really speaks to like, it's it's enshrined in their DNA. Yeah. It's, it's like their economic and security choice. Mm-hmm. So they might promise less internationally because they could use the excuse that the US is not going to put forward a strong next NDC, but Mm -hmm. potentially withdraw from the Paris Agreement again. But that doesn't mean that the shift of their economy would necessarily slow down. So again, I think sort of in in a lot of economies, it's actually the transition is happening. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not saying it's irreversible, but At least sort of there are a lot of assets, economic assets and jobs created in these sectors. And that's something that, yeah, stays Mm -hmm. no matter is at the helmet of the of the economy. Like you say, you know, in in countries like China, it does seem to be baked in now where this is what the the very fabric of how their society works is actually 
made of now. Maybe in other countries in Europe, it hasn't quite mature to that point yet, but it seems to be absolutely headed in that direction. I mean, the point on the Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, it came out in 2022, obviously, but 2023 was the real, um, I guess, proving ground for that. Do you think that that demonstrated how big of a seismic um, policy choice that was? I mean, obviously, I, I was writing about it in every single article. It didn't matter what the topic was. There was the, and as you know, the Inflation Reduction Act promises multi-billion dollars in subsidies and is an issue for European businesses or whatever. Um, do you think that the worst fears have been realized in, in that case? Or do you think that it's been, uh, I mean, a global good in a way that it has rocketed green spending up the agenda and, and it seems to be everything that Europe does now is at least with the IRA in mind, if not a direct response. You know, there's a battery state aid in Germany for Northvolt, for example, because the, the Americans made them an offer. You know, I'm sure we'll see more of that. Um, so yeah, do you think that the Inflation Reduction Act has had this global impact that we thought it would? I think the truth is somewhere in in the middle. I think the fact that the US really strongly portrays us as like we're back in the green tech race. We want to compete with China. Mm-hmm. We want to compete with the Europeans. Speaks to the fact that ideally it's now also a bit more baked in the US terms, the way the Chinese have that very strong and targeted industrial policy. And I think there it's actually helpful to compare it um, with the EU. We, we did it in our last report where we actually saw that one key factor is the clarity and the policy ambition, but the other one is the financial instruments that support it. And obviously China has both. The US is stronger on the financial instruments, a bit weaker on the policy ambition, but we understand why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Europe has both but like for now the financial instruments are very scattered and we hear especially from companies that it's difficult to access funding rapidly it's difficult to aggregate national and european funding Mm -hmm. obviously some of the funds changed purpose slightly in response to the pandemic and then in response to the war so it's it feels very complex to navigate also for regions or some of the local uh, mayors to say, okay, where where can we get funding from? Mm -hmm. And then obviously also if it takes three, four years to actually get the funding, that's not as appealing as the US tax breaks. So we would also argue that if we were to see a 90% trajectory from the commission, we need to reconsider the financial architecture that actually helps achieving it and There will be a debate on the new EU budget in 2025. We could assume it's smaller. We could assume that a larger share of that budget goes to supporting Ukraine, to supporting the other accession countries. And then we need to see that there is still enough public funding or a better structure for public-private funding to actually support the transition. Mm -hmm. So that will be another interesting debate Mm -hmm. to watch. I mean, just maybe to finish off the the point you made about how Europe has stepped up its climate diplomacy quite a lot over the last couple of years. I mean, I suppose a big part of that is the fact that Franz Timmermans was in charge of climate for the EU and not just the fact that he was somewhat of a political heavyweight, but the fact that he was the right-hand person in the commission. You know, he had this position where he could um, have a bit of gravitas and authority. 
do you think that as we move, you know, move towards the elections and, you know, a new commission will have to be appointed first the president and then all of, all of the, the other commissioners, is it absolutely important that again, Green Deal 2.0 or climate is given this, you know, even if maybe the president does it themselves, or even if it's a, you know, the, the executive vice president or, or whatever, that that status has to be preserved for all of these things we've been talking about to continue its momentum. Do you, do you think that it's actually important that that institutional role is preserved or even built on? I think it very much depends on how the portfolios will be shaped. Mm -hmm. So I think no matter how you name what portfolio, any future high representative or person that also deals with the development corporation should really look into the energy corporation and green tech corporation and, and strengthening that coalition of countries that want to move in that direction, mm -hmm. irrespective of who's getting elected in the US. Mm -hmm. So I think that is, is a strong element. I would think in terms of sectors that need to be addressed, there's clearly agriculture that needs to have a transition not only to decarbonize, but also to become more resilient to the droughts, to the heavy flooding and other climate-related impacts. So that's another strong focus. We are also arguing that we actually need a proper industrial strategy. So one that speaks to how can we keep the current industrial base strong while decarbonizing. And I think there the, the circular economy plays a bit more in, but also sort of how do we grow the green tech mm -hmm. industry? And it feels that Europe is not great on research, development and deployment yet. If you compare it to the US or Japan, mm -hmm. uh, it also, we often hear that they're very good in sort of innovating and having like the first initial phase of a project, but then the actual scale up doesn't seem to get supported enough. So there is an element to that, that we need to be much better at. Again, it speaks to where do we allocate these companies? <laughs> Can we allocate it in the regions that are transitioning away from coal or that are transitioning from fuel cars to electric cars to just sort of really keep keep some employment security for these regions. Mm -hmm. And then indeed the finance element comes through. Can we simplify the financial structure? Mm -hmm. Obviously not at the cost of any environmental or societal checks, but just ensure it's a, it's a bit more rapidly done. Mm -hmm. And I think that becomes quite an important package that is relevant for climate, but it might not be the climate commissioner that oversees it. No. No. So I think, yeah, the, the strong diplomacy angle and like strong transition focus on industry and agriculture are among the key topics that need to be addressed. Mm. There's so many moving parts. I don't, uh, I don't envy the person that will have to uh, allocate all of those jobs and make sure they all speak to one another and work. Um, Linda, thank you so much for joining me today. I, that's been a really great, interesting discussion about, um, I think, where we've come from over the last year and also you know what this year is going to look like it's going to be pretty pivotal um lots to look forward to some things to dread maybe but um isn't that always the case thank you so much for joining me thanks a lot i think today's chat with linda was a great lesson that can be applied to all walks of life really 
COP climate summits are massive events with hundreds of different pledges, agreements, ideals, memorandums of understanding and alliances debuting throughout the two weeks. Uh, There's also a lot of emotions involved because of the nature of climate action in our modern world. Uh, That's why taking a breather to assess the result is really essential. Uh, Some good pointers there for your general day-to-day life, I think. Just time before I sign off to reveal the answer to the quiz question. At the top of the show, I asked you what the official attendance was for COP28. 52,000, 65,000, 86,000 or 97,000 people? The correct answer is 86,000 people. Even without online participation, the number of people in Dubai over the two weeks was above 80,000, comfortably breaking COP27's poultry-by-comparison record of 37,000 people. Goes to show what an absolute logistic challenge it has become to host these events and why picking a venue is quite difficult. Many countries would love to host a COP but simply do not have the facilities to pull it off. Part of the reason Azerbaijan was able to secure hosting duties for November is that Baku, its capital city, is used to hosting international events. That's it for this episode. I'll be back again soon. Join me then for another fascinating trip through the world of the energy transition. 